0: You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Well, welcome to Kootenai Community Church Adult Sunday School. We're in the book of Daniel. Today we will be starting chapter 6, which is, if you remember, actually we'll start with prayer, and then we'll launch into a little bit of review, because there's often a couple of weeks between times when each of us teaches our section, our book. Jess was with us last week on uh, um, for Samuel. So let's let's open in prayer. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to look into your word. It is the lifeblood of our existence, and it is because Jesus Christ is the Word. And as we look today, we we are going to see that you have always been in charge, have always been sovereign. You will continue to be so. And that in the time of Daniel, when the Jewish nation needed a picture of your sovereignty more than ever, you provided that in love. And so, Lord, we need to be reminded of that today in your church The Father is sovereign, that the Trinity is in control of everything that happens, and that nothing surprises you. So illuminate us today, help us to see, through Daniel, how we can apply these truths today in our lives, so that we might honor you, we might lift up the Lord Jesus Christ, and spread your word to those who need to hear this message, for it is a message of truth. And we thank you for that, in Jesus' name, amen. So we'll start with Daniel chapter 6, let's... um. We're gonna read the first fifteen verses. We're not gonna to get to lions today. I know, but there's a petting zoo in Spokane, so if you need that. <clears throat> However, the next time we're together, we'll get to what is arguably called the most famous chapter in the Bible, or the most famous story in the Bible. I think that probably the story of Christ is more famous than that, but But everybody you can talk to knows, has heard of, pretty much everyone has heard of Daniel in the lion's den. So we'll look at the lead up to that today. Chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. It seemed good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps, that's governors, over the kingdom that they should be in charge of the whole kingdom. And over them, three commissioners, of whom Daniel was one, that these satraps might be accountable to them, and that the king might not suffer loss. Then this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and satraps because he possessed an extraordinary spirit. And the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. Then the commissioners and satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs, but they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption inasmuch as he was faithful, and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. Then these commissioners and satraps came by agreement to the king and spoke to him as follows, King Darius, live forever. All the commissioners of the kingdom... And prefects, the prefects and satraps, the high officials and the governors have consulted together that the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any God or man besides you, O king, for 30 days shall be cast into the lion's den. (laughs) Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it may not be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which may not be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the junction, signed the document that is the injunction. <laughs> Actually, that's where we're going to stop. Um, bait and switch. We're going to stop at verse ten. So, in this chapter, eighty-year-old, eighty-plus-year-old Daniel, as a result of his earlier stellar performance in his life previous in the Medo, in the Babylonian Empire. After the takeover, he is placed in another significant position of importance and responsibility. This immediately results in jealousy among the political appointees of the empire. Scurrilous men form a dark, evil plan to destroy Daniel, which results not only in his miraculous deliverance, but in the consolidation of Daniel's influence over this new kingdom. It is a wonderful, almost too-good-to-be-true historical narrative it shows Jehovah's complete sovereignty over the Gentile kings. Uh, Peter, if you can get, I have the uh, PowerPoint on the Google Drive. I forgot to give it to you. But if you can navigate to that and put slide 87 up. <laughs> yeah, I realize it'll take a minute. That's why I'm going to speak very slowly. The opposite of an auctioneer. So when we uh when we studied chapter two, we noted the size of the Medo-Persian Empire, and I have a map coming very soon. It is considered, it was considered the most, well, actually, it's considered the most powerful of the ancient empires. At its height, during the reign of Darius I the Great, it controlled more than 2.9 million square miles uh, of land and spanned three continents: Asia, Africa, and Europe. Its control extended eastward into India. And reached all the way westward into Greece. Its capitals were Persepolis and Susa. Its kings, with its kings sometimes residing in Babylon. For comparison, the lower 48 United States cover an area of about 3.1 million square miles. So it's approximately the size of the current United States lower 48. It is estimated in 480 BC, Yeah, 87. That's really cool. And I'm drawing a blank as to why that would be. Okay. Well, it's not important. It was just a map. It showed the giant Persian Empire all the way from Greece clear to India. It was huge. That's one of them. That'll preach. Yeah. Whoop. 85. We'll take 85. Do I hear 86? So you can kind of see it goes clear from Libya and upwards near Macedonia all the way over into uh, ancient India. It is estimated that around 480 BC, the Persian Empire had 50 million people in it under their control. This huge amount was roughly equivalent to 44% of the world's population at the time. That makes it the largest world power ever in terms of population percentage. So it was a monstrous empire, and Darius came into it, Darius Cyrus came into it, with a plan to work at administrating, uh, creating an administration over this monstrous empire. So with that as background, let's look at Daniel chapter 6. So verse 1, it seemed good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom, that they should be in charge of the whole kingdom. So at this point, the new king takes over Babylon. It becomes clear that in order to properly govern, he will need a great deal of help. <laughs> so the appointment of 120 satraps, which in Persian means protectors of the realm, uh, or governors. You could call them governors, although there are is a word used for governors, which means a lower level functionary as well. His appointment of those satraps is the first order of business. So each one of these men would be responsible for an area approximately the size of West Virginia, about 24,000 square miles, if each of the satrapies were equivalent in size. So as Cyrus Darius set up the kingdom for purposes of order, taxation, and general welfare, he was careful to give honor to the Babylonian gods. He even stated that Marduk himself... Which was their main god, the main Babylonian god. He even stated it on a, on a, on a cylinder that was found, that has been found, that Marduk himself chose he, Cyrus Darius, to conquer Babylon. Many would have looked at this as a correction of the final ruler, Nabonidus, who was not giving proper homage to God, to Marduk. Indeed, because of Nabonidus' frequent trips and long sojourns outside of the kingdom capital, capital, the temples of the main gods of Babylon had fallen into great disrepair. Remember, he was, Nabonidus spent a lot of time out of the capital, and so Belshazzar was appointed co-regent to cover that part of the, of the empire. And Nabonidus was busy building temples to the moon god, and who wasn't as cool a god as Marduk. So, <laughs> so these are some of, there are some who question the accuracy of the statement that Daniel makes about the appointment of 100, 120 satraps. This was not an unusual concept in ancient kingdoms. And in the book of Esther, which the writer there notes that there were 127 provinces in the Persian Empire of that day. Esther one. Now it took place in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Uthi, Ethiopia over 127 provinces. So this was indeed not an unusual concept. Often ancient kings would appoint sub-regions, sub-rulers over the, their large extensive holdings because it's not like today where things are communicated in a lightning fast, a lightning fast method. They're communicated by horseback or by camel or by caravan or carrier pigeon, maybe, but a long, it took a long time to get a letter from Ethiopia to Susa. It would be like walking from Texas to Ontario. So. How are you ready for doing that? Would that be a good day's journey or a good month's journey? So that's how long it would take. In short, again, the critics take take uh, exception to this simply because they don't like the fact that Daniel is a book of the Bible, and so much of it is prophetic and so accurate. And for those of you that haven't been here, we've all often discussed the fact that the main critic concern about Daniel is that it predicts things and is too accurate. Therefore it must have been written afterwards because nobody could be that accurate. Yeah, but what are your actual base reasons? Well, that's our reason. It's just too accurate. It can't be true because we say it can't be true. Oh, okay. But it is true. And all of these things, in short, there's no reason to dismiss this verse. And in fact, it is part of the, of the narrative that explains Darius King Darius's trust in Daniel. Uh, when we get to the lions' den, part I know you've all read it, so I'm not stealing any, any any punchline. We remember that you all remember that Darius was really upset that he had done this dumb thing and sent Daniel to the lions' den because he liked Daniel. Uh, and the the laws, and we'll talk about this when we get more into the into this section. But the laws of the Medes and Persians were unrevocable; they did not have the same kind of Plenary power, complete power that the Babylonian kings, if, if Nebuchadnezzar had done this and then changed his mind, said, oh, I've changed my mind. I don't want him in the lion's den. And it would have been over. He wouldn't have been in the lion's den. But not with the kings of the Medo-Persian empire. Their system of government was different. When a king made an edict, it had to stand. And we'll talk about why uh, and, and how today the same thing is happening. Whenever men set themselves up to be God, this is what happens. Evil occurs, gigantic mistakes occur, human life is lost, and suffering occurs. Men are not God. Did y'all know that? Okay, I'm seeing some head shakes. That's real comforting. Any comments about verse 1? Verse 2. And, so we've got 120 satraps appointed to cover this entire 2.9 million square mile kingdom. And, and under, over them, three commissioners... Which would be the next step up. They use different, the terms mean something different in their language than they mean in ours. Commissioners were more powerful than governors. (laughs) I'm sure some of our commissioners wish that they could be more powerful than our governor, but that's another story. Over them, three commissioners of whom Daniel was one, that these satraps might be accountable to them and that the king might not suffer loss. So the satraps answered to the three commissioners and were responsible to bring reports and keep order in the geographic area that they presided over. And it was very, very bad juju if you didn't keep order in your satrap, because you were responsible. And if the king had to do something about your mismanagement, it might include you losing your head and a new governor, a new satrap being appointed. So they answered to the commissioners. They were also responsible for the purposes of taxation and whatever the due process the Medo-Persian empire offered. They were also responsible to make sure that nobody plundered the stores of the kings, of the king in their particular satrap. They were to be making sure the king was kept whole, was kept um, from being abused, whether by, by funds or by intrigue or plots or anything like that. So they had a lot of responsibility. Verse 3, Then as we might have guessed, this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and satraps because he possessed an extraordinary spirit, and the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. So Daniel would be about 80 years old right now, and even so, he began distinguishing himself, as the scripture says, showing himself to be the most able administrator in the kingdom. The terminology used here to to describe him is the same as used by Belshazzar's mother the night before the downfall of Babylon. Because of his abilities, Cyrus Darius decides to appoint him over the entire kingdom as a sort of sub-regent to the king. How do you think the other 122 men took that? Oh, Daniel's a great guy. Yeah, he's the one that should be in charge. Political appointees with very, very minor exceptions, never act that way. All of them are always on the climb to be something more than they deserve. <laughs> and so as it as it always is, so it is here. Never forget that political appointees of every age will often look for ways to ingratiate themselves with the authority over them. Bribes will be used. Selective information will be carefully targeted against enemies. And general dishonesty will be used to target those who are in the way of ambitious men. Nothing, As Ecclesiastes says, there is nothing new under the sun. The same kinds of things that you see today in politics have been happening since about 4400 B.C., which is, if all of you have been studying the Bishop of Usher's timeline, you know that that was about 12 seconds after creation. Well, or 12 seconds after the fall, I should say. Because not after creation, it was all good then. So any comments about those two verses or questions? Verse 4. Then the commissioners and satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs. But they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption inasmuch as he was faithful and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. So would would it be, wish it could be, that we had men and women today in government, or I should say more, there may be some, who no matter what kind of search is made, you can't find something to hold against them. That's rare. That's extremely rare. And this man of God, that's one of the reasons that God was able to use Daniel in so many mighty ways, because his first and foremost desire was to serve Jehovah to serve Jehovah God. And so the first thing these wicked men try to do is to find something improper Daniel is doing that they can report to the king. Oh, king, Daniel said something mean. He he sent out a mean tweet. But because they believe all men are like themselves, the reason that they must be able to find something in Daniel, that is the reason they must be able to find something Daniel is doing wrong. They know themselves. They know what they would do in a position if they were in Daniel's position. Here's how I'd handle it. Here's what I'd do. I'd do this and I'd do that, and, and pretty soon I'd be, I'd be indispensable to the king. And so because they believe that, about them, because they know that about themselves, they assume Daniel is the same. So they're looking for a way to nail him. It doesn't say how many of the commissioners and satraps were involved, but likely both other commissioners and any satraps that they had influence over were certainly involved. They would have looked over his reports, audited his tax information, talked to his friends and enemies, and generally investigated Daniel, hopefully without him knowing. My guess is that Daniel knew what was going on the entire time. Now, I can't, the scripture doesn't say that. That's just an inference of mine. The text does not tell us why these men wanted to get rid of Daniel. It is likely because his integrity stood in the way of their machinations to enrich themselves or to garner power for themselves or both. It is possible also that it involved anti-Semitism, as verse 13 of this chapter states. They reminded the king where they reminded the king, Daniel is not one of us. So let's look at verse 13 really quickly, just so you can get some context here. Then they answered and spoke before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the injunction which you signed, but hope keeps making his petition three times a day. So that... They're making sure the king knows he's not one of us. He's one of those Jews. So there's very possible anti-Semitism in this. But most likely, it was simply that this man of integrity, this one man of integrity, stood in the way of them enriching themselves and empowering themselves. And so it is in every age. If you can find men of integrity or women of integrity, they can be used by God to stop a great many evils. But these guys are really serious about what they're going to do. So chapter verse 5 says, Then these men said, We will not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. It must have been incredibly irritating to these men that they could find no ground of accusation. They most certainly knew that they themselves were subjected to the same scrutiny. If If they themselves were subjected to the same scrutiny, much could be used to bring them down from their positions. The only option they had was to set up a situation where Daniel's integrity would be his downfall. Now, isn't that ironic? Where his integrity and his faithfulness to Jehovah would be his downfall. And in that comes a test for Daniel, and we'll see that test. We'll see how he responds. But every every person who names the name of Jesus Christ will at some time or sometimes in their life be put in a position where their integrity would possibly be their downfall. If they won't stay true to the Lord Jesus Christ, they may, if they won't stay true, then they may advance. If they will stay true, they may lose everything. They may lose their life. And this is what happens to Daniel. It's no different today. The only op- operation they had would be to, op- the only The only option they had was to set up a situation where Daniel's integrity would be his downfall. They had to provide a legal means for his destruction. It would have to be something that his conscience would not allow him to do, that would not allow him to do anything different than he was known for doing. It would have to be a conflict between official regulations and the law of God. Does that sound familiar? Boy, I'm sure glad that that doesn't happen today. We don't have to live under that. Interestingly... Though, interestingly enough, it would have required them to study the Old Testament, to study the scriptures of the times, to know how to get Daniel, or to, as well as watching him. Or to at least inquire with possibly some of the disreputable Jewish exiles that they might have access to. In any event, it required them to find something that Daniel could not in good conscience violate because they knew he would not violate the word of God or his conscience. And so they searched around, they cast around and they come up with a plan. Then these commissioners, they came up with a plan and it's going to be, it's going to be laid out here for us. They came up with a plan. The commissioners and satraps, verse six, came by agreement to the king and spoke to him as follows. King Darius, live forever. If I was King Darius, I would have probably thought something's up. But unfortunately, um, Darius was a man and he was subject to the same i say unfortunately what else would he be dumb statement unfortunately he was subject to the same problems that all men have if you're going to if if you elevate them they like it it's it's hard for all of us when when someone else gets the credit for something we did how do you feel about that you know it's just tough that's a different st- situation than here. But anyway, King Darius, live forever. That was a fairly well-worn greeting for kings of the day. It is not known how long the plotting took, but it must not have been too long after the conquering of Babylon. The co-conspirators now cozy up to the king and begin to buy his favor with well-chosen words. I'll bet you they wrote this out. They planned it. No, we can't do that. Crumpled up papyrus and papyrus and threw it away and etched another one. And oh, we can't do that. Or probably be a cuneiform on a cylinder. That'd be a lot more difficult, wouldn't it? Okay, so I'm getting carried away. They wanted to buy his favor. Unfortunately, many rulers and people in positions of responsibility who wish to do the right things for those they are responsible for think that their underlings have the same mindset. Often this isn't true. The underlings are looking for ways to advance themselves. jockeying for power, money, and position generally occupy the, the minds of many of those who are under the authority of others. The Persian word translated "came by agreement" it has the idea of coming together tumultuously, kind of like falling over each other and and in disarray and disorder. Um, so these guys came together in the king's throne room, and it was like they they filed in and they hurried in and they bumped into each other. That's the idea behind this. One commentator thought that but this was pop, perhaps was on purpose to make it look like something of an emergency was happening that needed to be dealt with immediately. It would it would startle the king. It would make him possibly less attentive to the things that were going on, less thoughtful about what was happening. If he's got an emergency, if there's an emergency, we got to handle this. we got to take care of this. Emergencies are the tools of those kind of people. <laughs> the idea would be to communicate urgency to the king and hopefully prevent him from asking a lot of questions which would be difficult to answer. So verse 7, all the commissioners, here's what they say, King Darius, O live forever. All the commissioners of the kingdom, the prefects, the satraps, the high officials, and the governors have consulted together that the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days shall be cast into the lion's den. Moms, have you ever had your kids say, but mom, everybody's doing it. No, you're not. I remember what my mom said. You want to spank it? Or something like that. Using a variation of the time-worn phrase used by children everywhere, but mom, everyone's doing it. Those who came to the king begin by implying that all of the commissioners and satraps and their underlings had agreed to what they were about to propose. (laughs) That would be so far from the truth. Today, you could almost make a case for it with electronic communication. But back then, I'm sure many of these governors hadn't made it back to the capital for this. Some of the more officious and, and appropriate ones were probably still in their homes making sure the king wasn't plundered in their area. More than likely... Um, it's, 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 uh, he be, they, so they begin by implying that all of the commissioners and chat traps had agreed. It is unlikely that all had agreed. More than likely, many of them were not even in on the plotting, since they were often, because of their duties, scattered about the kingdom. We know one who didn't agree, don't we? Who was that? It would be Daniel. <laughs> so if if I was the king, I'd like to think this, at least. If I was the king and someone came in and said this to me, I'd want to know what my most favored commissioner had said, but probably because they presented it as an emergency in something in, in this situation, Darius was st- stricken, unable to think properly. I, I don't know. I just, I, I really tried to think this through and, and I just, he, he didn't ask questions. He didn't ask any questions. So nevertheless, the group petitions the king and described to him an apparent result of meetings they had to give him great honor. So he would have liked that part. No one can pray to any God or man except beside you, O king, for 30 days. And then any who does shall be cast into the lion's den. This would have appealed to Darius' natural vanity and wished to be looked upon as more than he was. It was not, by the way, it was not a requirement of the Persian religions that people look at the king as actual deity. It wasn't a requirement in their holy books. But it was required they at least look at him as a direct representative of deity. So this would have been a step above what the religion required. And it would have played to Darius' vanity. The heart of the scheme was to require prayer only to the king for 30 days. Obviously, the conspirators had observed Daniel's praying, habit of praying to Jehovah three times a day. The penalty would be to be cast into the lion's den. Remember, the Babylonians used fire often to destroy their prisoners and enemies. But the Persians worshipped fire. It was one of their gods. And so they used a different method for killing lawbreakers. They used lions. It was just as effective, by the way. And it cut down on kitty feed. Darius, believing the commissioners and satraps, assented to their suggestion without so much as a question. He didn't even ask them any questions. And the scripture would have had those questions if God, if they had and God deemed them necessary for us to hear. There were no questions. He just assented to it. Possibly at this point in his kingship, he was still getting to know the officials he had appointed, and he assumed the best. Now, I'm conjecturing on that. That's not in the scripture. So everyone's clear on that. I'm just assuming that he assumed the best. We all know what happens when we assume things. Verse 8. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it may not be changed according to the laws of the Medes and Persians, which may not be revoked. I would have. I mean, if you heard someone say that to you and then they reminded you of your own law that if you do this, it can't be revoked. That might open some suspicions in my mind, I hope. So the petitioners knew that unlike Babylonians whose kings had ultimate power to make or break law, Persian law, once invoked, was irrevocable. The law, any law the king made must be followed to the letter, even by the king himself. And they remind Darius of that as they present this idea to him. The Persian word used for sign, sign the document here. and in verses 9 and 10, has the idea of to write, to draw up, to draft. And it implies a bit more work than just reading and and uh, pending your signature to a document. The Persian word for revoked includes the idea that something cannot even be altered a little bit. So Daniel, uh, um, I'm, this is silly, but um, Darius couldn't have said, okay, I can't revoke it, but I now pass a law that... that our best warriors have to put muzzles on the lions. Good luck with that. Or something. He couldn't even do that. Not only could they not revoke it, they couldn't alter it at all. It had to be carried out as written. And he would have, he would have put his sig- signet on it, his signature on it, and the officials, would, the uh, most important officials would have put their signature on it. Whose signature would have been missing? We're still not suspicious. Darius, you dimwit. One commentator explained how this concept probably gained favor in the ancient Mideast, this idea of the laws of the Medes and Persians being irrevocable. This custom grew out of the opinions which prevailed in the East in regard to the monarch. His will was absolute, and it was a part of the system which prevailed then to exalt the monarch and leave the impression in the mind of the people that he was more than a man. He was infallible and could not err. Nothing was better adapted to keeping up that impression than an established principle of this kind, that a law once ordained could not be repealed or changed. To do this would be a practical acknowledgement that there was a defect in the law, that there was a want of wisdom in ordaining it, and that all the circumstances were not foreseen, and that the king was liable to be deceived and to err. With all the disadvantages attending such a custom, it was judged better to maintain it than to allow that the monarch could err. And hence, when a law was ordained, it became fixed and unchanging. They wanted the people to look at their monarch as either a deity or a perfect representative of the deity. That doesn't happen today, does it? I'll leave that to your imagination or your scriptural study, which would be better. If the king ordained something and then changed his mind, well, maybe he made mistakes on other things too. That could never be allowed to get into the minds of the people under the control of the monarch. So, one in one historical chronicle of the Persian kings, the story is told of an Athenian warrior named Charidemus who gave the king, he was a, a good warrior and he had, he had, he had, uh, um, worked very well in a recent campaign to subdue some of the king's enemies. And so the king gathered a bunch of people and he gathered this guy because he his tactics came to the king's attention. This is a uh ancient chronicle that was it's actually in recorded a historical chronicle. So it's an Athenian warrior named Charidemus. He gave the king advice regarding an upcoming military tactic. The king's advisors disagreed with his with his uh, his uh, advice. And Charidemus lost his temper and slurred the advisors, commenting on the Persians' lack of manliness. This angered the king, who ordered Charidemus to be put to death. He, in, in a fit of anger, ordered this good warrior to be put to death. The king had misgivings once he cooled off, but he could do nothing. The Chronicle states this, this way. Here's how the history, state, history states it. Once the king's passion had cooled... He promptly regretted his act and reproached himself for having made a serious mistake, but all his royal power was not able to undo what was done. <laughs> so, this laws of the Medes and the Persians figures, figures very well in the Jehovah God setting up this situation where Daniel is obviously going to die. There's just nothing that can stop this. He's going to die. And there would have been a lot of people sad about this and a lot of people happy about this. And Jehovah is setting this up again, as we've seen throughout the book of Daniel, to show his sovereignty over all the actions of men, whether Jewish or Gentile. All the actions of men. Verse 9. Therefore King Darius signed the document, that is the injunction. So without further ado, without any questions, without any inquiries, without any research, Darius simply signs after he's drafted it. It's very possible that he helped draft or drafted the document. It may very well have been that these commissioners and satraps brought in a previously drafted document for him to sign, but there's more to him than just signing it. It's, he must have read it. He may have, who knows, but at any rate, he signs the document. And it is noted that it is not just a document, but that it is in a legal sense a decree, an interdict, something that cannot be undone. So even in the documentation that he signed, even in the wording that he signed, it's also noted that it can't be undone. It was to stop something prescribed in the document, and that something was the very thing that Daniel was known to do faithfully every day. One commentator explains this historical context, which shows that Darius' signature on this document was perfectly in line with his known character. He says this, speaking of Darius or Cyrus, that from his character as given by Xenophon, a man of weak mind, a man passionate and peevish, a man given to wine and women, we are not to expect much of wisdom. We are not to expect much wisdom. Of this man, we are not to expect much wisdom. There is nothing stated here by Daniel with is inconsistent with the character of such a man. Again, the critics attack this verse. How would we know? And we have other historical documents that talk about the character of this man. But one of the things that bothers me the most is if the pagan secular world can't find something that says something that the Bible says, then the Bible must be wrong, even if it's the only book that speaks on it. But in fact, it is a has been proven again and again and again to be the most reliable document we have for history. So it's simple peevishness as a characteristic of Darius that causes them to reject what the scripture says if they can't document it in some historical document. But in this particular case, it was. At this time in the narrative, the plan is in place. Daniel will, in the eyes of the plotters, be at least neutered, at best destroyed. One thing the plotters didn't anticipate, though, is first, Jehovah's sovereignty over every action that happens on this planet, or in the known universe, or in the unknown. One thing they didn't anticipate, the second thing they didn't anticipate, though, was the king's care for Daniel himself. Had they known that, they might have changed their plot. I'm not sure they thought this through. What if Daniel survives this? They wouldn't have to think that through. Had anybody ever survived being thrown into a lion's den? Ever? In the history of lion's denishness? Denning? No, they became lion food every time. So they would have not thought through that all the way. Had they known, though, they might have changed their plot, but God was setting this up in order to demonstrate his sovereignty over the Gentile kings. He was also going to show his care marvelously for the Jewish exiles. He would be taking care of their most beloved person at the time, Daniel. So we will look at... That's where we're going to stop today, and uh, the next time I'm with you, we will look at the actual narrative of the lion's den. It's funny that many commentators who write on Daniel skip some of these middle chapters and just write on the ones that have prophecy, but there is so much to be gleaned from this, to understand the sovereignty of God, the way that God orchestrates things. This was all under the sovereign hand of God, set up. To put Daniel in a position that he would show his integrity, which would speak to multitudes. And that also he would be delivered miraculously and show God's sovereignty over Gentiles, over Jews, over all, and put Daniel in a position where he was very, very important and even more important than before in the kingdom. So with that, are there any questions or concerns or other comments about this first Chapter nine, chapters of nine, chapters of verse six. How about nine verses of chapter six? That was a a, what do you call that? Dyslexic revelation. That was a dyslexic. Yes, yes. That's a good point. He's asking. He's, uh, he pointed out that that Daniel was guilty of no lack of integrity, no lack of what verse four. Uh, No ground of accusation, including in regard to government affairs. And he had lived for decades under Babylonian rule and so well understood Babylonian rule. How long had he been under the Medes and the Persians to understand Medo-Persian rule? Is that your statement? I didn't have time to develop a doctrine on that, so... So it would have been pointed out that it would have been because there were surrounding nations, these were some of the surrounding nations, there would have been interaction with them, and they would have had to study each other's laws to some degree to know how to properly react. Would that be the gist of your statement? Pretty much. Yeah. It's like, um, I understand a little bit about the Canadian Constitution. Because there are neighbors, there are 4,000-mile border neighbors, and a little bit about the Mexican Constitution, because I've studied some of the concepts relating to immigration and border crossing, and 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 I'm not a high-level official; I'm just a dimwit who lives in who lives in Idaho. But so Daniel, most likely, uh, springing off of Ben's statement, would have had occasion to deal with diplomatic issues between other nations, and so he would have probably had some knowledge of their laws, probably knowing Daniel as officious and proper as he was. He probably knew their constitution. They didn't have a constitution. He probably knew their laws better than their king did. Jim. So Jim points out that Daniel would have lived, he lived under Hebrew law before uh, the Babylonians, and so his 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 compass was the word of God, and using that, he would have been using both that and trying to navigate the Babylonian law while being remaining uh, in fidelity to God's law. And he's doing the same thing. And actually, it's his downfall, downfall in quotes, in in Medo-Persia, because he's trying to navigate Medo-Persian law. Can you imagine how easy, how bad it is to be able to just enact a law that quick? That's one of the reasons for all of its problems, our particular form of government, it's really difficult to enact a law, and it should be. It should, I mean, Jim. Right. Both. Right. Twice in his law and his life, he ran afoul of man's law, the Medo-Persians, and prior to that, the Babylonians, with refusing to eat the food. So to end this, unless there's other observations or comments, the decision Daniel makes, as we will see, sort of becomes, sort of? let's leave out the word sort of becomes a template for Christians down through the ages to consider whenever confronted with the wicked edicts of the pagan governments, whenever the secular rulers require something that the people of God in order to do would have to violate scripture and their conscience in order to submit to, they have often looked to Daniel's example and we need to continue to do that. We need to continue to look to Daniel's example. It is not always death that awaits at the end of faithfulness but throughout the ages, many times it most certainly was. And so today, as we look through this book and continue studying this book, what can we glean from the life of Daniel that God would want to incorporate into our lives so that we will remain faithful to him no matter the cost? And, and let, us, let us observe that little phrase, no matter the cost, carefully. Counting the cost is an important thing. It's an important thing. It's one of the things everyone must do when they become a Christian and throughout their Christian life. Count the cost. The cost, in this case, would be to defame Jehovah, to bring down the glory of God. And Daniel was not willing to do that. We'll see. No, we don't know if he's not willing yet. I haven't got there. Boy, I sure hope Daniel stands up to the challenge, don't you? Let's pray. Father, thank you for these wonderful examples you give from Scripture that are real history, that have happened in your sovereign control. Although you were sovereign over this, Daniel, under your sovereignty and by your grace, remained faithful to you. Might it be so in our day today with those of us who love you. And will thank you for strengthening us toward that end in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church.